This is Fordham Conversations. I'm Nora Flaherty. As far as I can tell, everyone is away this week and next week. The streets of my neighborhood are relatively empty, and almost everyone I know has gone on vacation somewhere. But for some people, inspiration to travel doesn't just come from the summer lull. It comes from the desire to see, to learn, to grab new experience by the shoulders, shake it around, and show it who's boss. To boldly go where no man has gone before. Most of us don't actually get to go to space. But many of us do long to see things firsthand that others only read about in books or hear about in legends. I've come into possession of a map. The sole surviving record of an uncharted island. A place that was thought to exist only in myth. Of course, paying for these adventures can be problematic, as Jack Black finds in this scene from King Kong. Is he asking for more money? He's asking us to fund a wild goose chase. I'm talking about a primitive world. Never before seen by man. The ruins of an entire civilization. The most spectacular thing you've ever seen. Will there be boobies? Once you've found a way to get out there, though... Traveling for the sake of documenting a foreign place or way of life can be truly exhilarating. While most of us mainly encounter academics in classrooms and libraries, they, in fact, are some of the biggest travelers around. And most of it they do to learn about and document things that we cannot see from here. There are some inconveniences, though, even for your more intrepid travelers. Sweat, bugs, mildew, and intense heat are just a few of the discomforts that tropical researchers find themselves dealing with along with those disconcerting howler monkeys. But for researchers like Alan Clark, it's all worth it. Clark actually recorded the sounds you just heard on a recent trip to the rainforest in Costa Rica. I spoke to Clark last year about his research on the adorable Magellanic penguins of Argentina. But since then, Clark has switched gears and climates somewhat. And more recently, he's been documenting and studying the songs of striped-breasted wrens. And enjoying the tropical rainy season, lots of rice and beans, and a few hours of electricity every day. I asked Clark to come to the station and talk with me about what he's been up to, and about the joys and pains of doing adventurous fieldwork. Alan Clark, welcome. Good to be here. So tell me where you've been and what you've been doing. Well, this past summer, I began a research project in Costa Rica, and this project is to begin to explore the vocalizations of uh, a small wren. It's kind of an oddball in its genus because it has two sets of songs. Most birds have one set of song and lots of variation on that, but this has two very different kinds of calls. And so we're exploring why do they have these calls and how do they use them. And so the first species we're looking at is the striped-breasted wren in Costa Rica, and then this fall I'll be going to Panama to explore some research sites for a study on the striped-throated wren, its sister species. When did you get back from Costa Rica? I got back about a week and a half ago. So last time we spoke, you were studying penguins. How did you find yourself in the tropics? Well, when I was studying the penguins, I became very interested in the duets that the pairs perform, and I continue to study the duetting in penguins, but I became interested in duetting more generally. And the most famous duetters in the bird world are, are the Thryothrus wrens, and it's a genus that's recently been split, but it's a group of wrens, and they duet, and the male and female um, either sing separately or tightly overlapping songs um, of various types. And so I became very interested in the wrens, and so I recently received a grant to begin a pilot study, working with a colleague of mine from SUNY Aniata to explore the vocalizations um, of, of these um, duetting wrens. So you take a plane, presumably, to Costa Rica. First of all, how did you get to, um, you were at the El Sota Biological Station. How did you get there? 
fortunately for me, there was a class that was about to start at the field station. And so getting there was as simple as going to the hotel, spending the night, and then leaving on the bus with them the next day for a several-hour ride uh, to the the field station, which was uh, remote and over rough roads, but, um, you know, easily done. My return trip, however, I had to sort of wing it myself. So I caught a tractor down the road because the roads had become so bad that vehicles could no longer pass. So I got a tractor the first few miles, and then um, I got got a lift from there into the nearest town about an hour away, and then I caught a local public bus, and my two-hour ride on the bus cost me nearly two and a half dollars, and then um, a taxi to the hotel near the airport. So it was a little different return trip. So you were on a bus full of students heading to this, uh, this biological station. Tell me what your first impressions were when you were coming in. Well, as you're driving down these roads, um, they're they're basically one-lane gravel dirt roads, and and some of the most frightening bridges I've ever transversed. They're basically they lay down some timbers and they throw some plywood across them, and no railings, and your tires barely fit. Uh, um, and I'm not so good at heights, so it always made me a little nervous going on these bridges. But you, as you go, you see um, fewer and fewer farms. At the very beginning, is it was actually kind of distressing because you see acres and acres of nothing but um, dole banana plantations and um, you know extreme monocultures and then the the chiquita and dole pineapple plantations but as you get further and further out um, you see more and more second growth forest and then finally you get to this beautiful uh, primary forest and then all of a sudden there's a sign on the side of the road that says El Zota biological station it's so much different than my previous research, which is in um, Patagonia, which is a scrub desert, so very little green. And this was a lowland tropical rainforest, which is some of the most lush uh, green oil you'll find anywhere on the planet. And so it was the, it's a stark contrast. Trees are huge. There's a lot of primary forest there, which we would call old growth, uh, but they refer to as primary forest. So just visually, it was incredibly striking, the vine tangles and the, the, tree, the, the trees appearing through the canopy several hundred feet in the air. It was, it was beautiful. So tell me what it was like there uh, climate-wise, weather-wise. Well, it's the lowland rainforest, and so it's the rainy season this time of year there. So it is very humid, and it's very uh, hot, and it's very wet. Uh, I was there for four weeks, and it rained every day. Um, and several, often several times a day, and uh, which you would expect. Normally this time of year there, there is a small break, and then we'd hope to hit that break when there would be less rain, but this year the break never appeared, and it, it rained all the way through the, uh, the, the break season. So it was, it was very damp and um, very humid and uh, very lush because of that. Was it very muddy? extremely muddy because of uh, so much rain the trails that go through the forests um, were often covered in several feet of water or um, were just basically mud pits and several times just walking along I would all of a sudden sink down and find myself without any boots and occasionally lying face down in the mud um, still searching for my boots and uh, it became uh, a bit of a challenge to get to some places as the rain season seemed to get wetter and wetter uh, but it, uh, it it was uh, always uh, a challenge when you're trying to cross a river and you see your little bridge is actually underwater. But uh, it uh, it the 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 water was never so tremendous that we couldn't get to where we wanted to go. So what was it like? How did it feel on a day to day basis to be going through all this? 
You know, I love what I'm doing so much that it never bothered me in the slightest. Now, we had um, field assistants and some of the students who were really trying to be troopers about uh, the insects and the weather um, and, uh, the, you know, the, the, their inability to actually dry their clothes. Because when you're traveling through all this mud, you need several sets of clothes a day. Uh, and, um, and with the rain and the humidity, your clothes don't dry even after you wash them. So it got to be quite a challenge for uh, the students and uh, the researchers to uh, just simply have clothes that you could, could, could wear. And uh, um, and so the uh, the mildew smell, even after you wash your clothes, never really goes away. And so I know on my return, the first thing I did was fill the washer with clothes and hit hot um, and hope for the best. So tell me about an average day when you were doing this research. Well, birds are early. And, you know, you've heard the statement, the early bird gets the worm. And um, throughout the world, most bird activity is first thing in the morning. That's when there's the most singing. That's when there's the most territorial disputes between neighbors. And that's when there's the most, um, you know, cheating on your your mate, extra pair copulations. And so the greatest amount of bird activity happens just before and just after dawn. And so in order to get to our sites where these birds' territories were, we would often have to hike several miles to get to them. So that would involve getting up at quarter to four, four o'clock in the morning so that you could be there as the sun would come up at 5.15, 5.30 in the morning. And so then you would be there and um, generally stay through about uh, 10 o'clock in the morning. And, um, and that's, that's often when the bird activity ends for the day. So what were the, I know you had a fairly good situation because you were a faculty member, but what were your living conditions like in Costa Rica? Oh, I don't want to minimize the fact that I still have oozing um, chigger bites and my tick bites are finally healing. Um, um, I mean, there's certainly, um, anytime you do research in the tropics, you're not only researching, but your food. And so, um, I mean, I, I don't want to like try to, to make this some sort of like, yes, this is an ethereal experience with no issues, but I, I'm, I mean, that's just part of what you do. And, um, you know, it's, it's part of research, uh, especially in these areas with this incredible diversity. So um, I'm, I, I fully acknowledge that it, you know, you, it can be a bit of a, a pain, literally, sometimes to be to be working in the tropics. Uh, but uh, it's certainly for me, it was all worth it. And you know, things like the the food I mentioned uh, that I uh, the meals were very simple and a staple of Costa Rican uh, cuisine is rice and beans. Um, rice and beans, pinto de gallo in the morning, and usually rice and beans um, for dinner and lunch. And we certainly, those that was the main staple for the month I was there. We had rice and beans three times a day, and sometimes that was the meal. And uh, I have to admit that uh, over time I ate less and less rice and beans as I wearied of them. It wasn't that they weren't good, uh, but I think in American culture we're, we're, we're used to constant change in our diet. And um, the idea of having the same thing over and over again for all three meals, um, don't quite know how to handle that. Uh, and so for me, which isn't necessarily a bad thing, it means I ate less and I lost weight in addition to you know all of the, the activity. So um, yes, I, I don't want to see another rice and bean combination for a little while, but um, uh, it was uh, certainly um, just part of, of, of life there. Oh, the place is completely surrounded. The entire place is crawling with living things. Why they call it the jungle, sweetheart. That was adventure academic extraordinaire Indiana Jones in Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom.
You are listening to a slightly less adventurous Fordham Conversations on WFUV 90.7 and WFUV.org. Safely in the studio, I'm Nora Flaherty. My guest today on the show is Alan Clark, and we're talking about his experiences documenting birdsong in the Costa Rican rainforest. In a few minutes, we'll hear about efforts to keep another form of communication alive. But first, let's hear the rest of my conversation with Alan Clark. Now, what sort of images or moments are going to stay with you for a while from this time? Well, there were some absolutely wonderful discoveries we made. And in addition to just trying to see how they use these calls, um, one of the things we did was we took these two different calls. They have a call that's just a simple hoot, 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 and then a complicated song like most wrens have. And we would play these to the birds um, from inside their territory, simulating like a a territorial intrusion by some strange um, individual. So, um, and then we would see how they reacted to it. And uh, they would, most of the time, they're hooting, which is, this is the rare call. This is the unusual call for these two species we're studying. So um, they would be hooting. But the minute you played um, uh, either a hoot or one of their complex calls of a stranger, they would immediately switch to their complex songs. So we got started getting an idea of how they're using these calls. Clearly, the complex song is more aggressive. But then we started experimenting a little bit. And I thought, well, you know, they do this duet. Um, what, and we had a lot of single guys. And I thought, well, wonder what a single guy would do if he thought there was a single female in his territory. You mean single wrens, not single researchers, right? Oh, I do. I do. I do. I anthropomorphize terribly, but I just find it more fun to talk about. Um, my study species um, when I refer to them in an anthropomorphic kind of way, but I do mean the, the single wrens. And so um, what we did is we took editing software and we took some of the duet recordings we have and we just erased um, the male portion of the duet. So we were playing the female portion of a duet only in a, in a male's territory and um, just to see what would happen. And when we did that, um, the males never switched to their complex aggressive song they kept hooting. In fact, they um, began performing a call that's never been recorded before. And so we discovered a new call for this species by playing um, the call of a single female. Um, so that, that was it. It was, was tremendously exciting because it was unexpected. And, um, uh, and we discovered other unusual behaviors. So I thought, well, what happens if you play um, a female, you know, a single female um, in the territory of a pair? What's, what's the female going to do? And as opposed to what's the male going to do? Because these duets are models for intersexual um, cooperation. And um, and why do they have duetting is still, you know, at, at issue in the research. So when we played the call of a female in the territory, the female went ballistic and began singing, which had almost never been recorded. Females don't sing by themselves in this species, but they certainly did when I played an intruding female. And the male never switched to complex. In fact, he kind of snuck off and began hooting in the background. And so you have to wonder if this 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 competition you know extends what the what are the motivations for their behavior. So from a research perspective, it was incredibly successful. Not only were we able to uh, reach our goals of trying to figure out why these species use these songs, at least to begin to explore that, but we also discovered some really exciting things that we hadn't even predicted about um, their calls and how they use them. Plus, they're just darn cute. What other experiences did you have from a non-research perspective that you'll remember? Well, these are the lowland rainforests, so there's wildlife everywhere, and so uh, both large and small. So, you know, it's not uncommon to see jaguar prints, and I didn't see a jaguar, but that's not unusual. But there are um, tapirs, and there's three species of monkeys, um, and I'm a, you know, a a bird geek, and I love birds, all kinds of birds, and the the lowland rainforest is full of them. 
And one of my favorite uh, moments was as I was watching um, through my binoculars a pair of great green macaws, which are a threatened or endangered species, and they were feeding um, near the the field station itself in some palms, and. Um, and a, uh, a, a toucan, the, the keel-billed toucan, that's the one that's on the Fruit Loops box, um, flew right through my field of view in my binoculars as a chorus of holler monkeys began singing in the background. And it just sort of um, made it seem one of those you know, glorious moments when you feel like you're, you're, you're part of uh, this glorious biodiversity that we have here on Earth. So you are not going back to Costa Rica, but you're headed to Panama? Well, I will be going back to Costa Rica in um, December. I'm going to scout out another site, and then I'm also going to take a Spanish immersion course for a few weeks. I have some rudimentary Spanish I picked up while studying penguins in Argentina, but I want to begin collaborating with South American scientists, and to do that, I need to dramatically improve my skill set. So I will continue to be going back to Costa Rica to do more research on this species. But um, like I say, there's a sibling species. Um, to this and that it's not found in Costa Rica. So I'll be headed down to Panama this fall to um, try to find a, a site that has um, a large enough grouping of, uh, of this other species um, so that we can begin a study of that species as well. So what do you anticipate the site in Panama will be like? Well, I've been um, corresponding with some colleagues and some folks I know there with the uh, Panama Audubon Society and with a conservation organization that runs probably the best site that's known for these species. And they're, they're, they're not as numerous as um, the striped-breasted wren that we were studying in Costa Rica. They're harder to find, and they don't seem to be in as high concentrations. But the site that that I will be going to, which... Um, is the premier site is difficult to get to. You have to fly in by private plane to this eco-resort. So the accommodations will be um, quite nice, um, but, um, you know, there's always a problem with electricity. You know, us people who study uh, animal sounds, we need electricity to, you know, charge our batteries for our recording equipment and for our computers. And so there um, we will have maybe an hour and out to two hours of electricity a day from generators as opposed to my last site where we had five or six hours a day, which was, was plenty to charge all the batteries and, and to work on the computers and so forth. So there are some challenges just getting there. Um, and it's also more expensive since it is really an eco-resort that they let researchers, you know, stay in the back corner somewhere. Um, and so I'm also looking for at a couple of other sites that might be a little more accessible. Is there anything else that you'd like to add about the experience of going down there? The opportunity to go to, um, you know, the tropical rainforest, which is, is such a symbol for uh, inspiring conservation for folks. And uh, to be able to be there and participating in research for me, and I noticed for many of the folks around me, this, the mostly U.S. students who were, you know, in classes and um, in conducting research, it's, it's for many of us, it's a dream of a lifetime to see, um, you know, snakes and um, giant insects and, and birds and to hear the, the, uh, the howler monkey chorus at 4.30 in the morning. And so it was for many folks, it's almost a spiritual experience uh, just to be part of that because it's so otherworldly from what we have here at, at you know, at the Bronx, at, at Fordham University or wherever people are. It's just a, it's a very different um, kind of world. And so it, it takes you to a different place and it gives you a whole different perspective on what life can be and is. Alan Clark is an assistant professor of biology at Fordham, and he has recently returned from Costa Rica, where he's been studying the calls of the striped-breasted wren. Alan, thanks so much. 
My pleasure. This is Fordham Conversations on WFUV 90.7 and WFUV.org. I'm Nora Flaherty. Just after the show this morning, it's Cityscape with George Bodarkey. On today's show, things to do in New York on the cheap. That's ahead at 7.30. But first, as scientists and other researchers rush to document the species and cultures that exist in the rainforest, those same species, we're often told, are disappearing. The Rainforest Action Network says that an average of 137 species of plants and animals a day become extinct in the world's tropical rainforests. This may seem like a situation that is unique to species, but in fact, it's not. Experts say that another mass extinction is also taking place, language extinction. Maybe you speak one or two or even three languages, but we in the world speak about 6,000. Most of those, however, are going the way of the dodo, thanks to social change, globalization, and other factors. Closing the show today, we have a story about one language on the verge of extinction, Ladino. Ladino evolved from Spanish, Hebrew, Turkish, and other languages picked up by Jews who had been expelled from Spain in 1492. Now Ladino is evolving again, from a living tongue to a language of historians and librarians. Sandy Tolan visited Bulgaria and found that Ladino speakers there aren't quite ready to let go. Four old women sit around a table at Shalom, a Jewish gathering house in Sofia. It's their weekly meeting of the Club Ladino, a social group whose membership is getting smaller and smaller. When she sings, Sophie Denan's face lights up like a child's, alert and animated. She and her friends are here to teach, to transfer what they know before it's too late. And so they turn to the next generation, a Bulgarian Jew named Lika. They want Lika to sing the memory, to create a record for all time. Their ancestors left Spain in a hurry five centuries ago, carrying little but their traditions, their stories, and their language. Ladino lived for centuries on the tongues of Balkan Jews, in song, in conversation, in stories, and in proverbs, crafted at the hearth and in the kitchen. Come la fruta, no demandes de que arvole es. Eat the fruit, and don't ask which street came from. Cuando entras en el lugar oscuro, mete tu luz adelante. When you enter a dark place, hold your light in front of you. El que se echa con perros, con pulgas se alevanta. He who sleeps with dogs gets up with fleas. En boca cerrada no entra mosca. Into a closed mouth, no fly will enter. Que no se siente, no viene de buena gente. When I listen to the language, I go back to my childhood. I feel somehow more comfortable, more secure. It's sometimes some words, some proverbs, and I can feel even the smell of the house. It's very strange. Downstairs, in an office just below the Club Ladino ladies, a younger woman who's also rediscovering her Ladino, Becca Lazarova. She's gazing into the middle distance, as if at a memory. For my grandparents, for this generation, it was the home language. They really communicated at home only in Ladin. In the small park that was in the Jewish quarter, they used to go there every afternoon at about 4 o'clock, talking in this peculiar language until your children playing around them. 
And they absolutely understood each other, speaking this mixture of uh, Spanish, Hebrew, Turkish, and Bulgarian. This hybrid Judeo-Spanish was the mother tongue for Bulgarian Jews well into the 20th century. At the same time, nationalism and Zionism both grew stronger, and Jews here came under pressure to speak Bulgarian and Hebrew. Ladino was pushed into the kitchen. I remember Birkat Amazon, you know, this is the prayer after the meal. Usually Jews say it in Hebrew. I remember it in Ladino from my grandfather. And if you want me to translate it, it means we ate and drank and thanked God for the food that we ate, for the water that we drink, for the clothes that we wear, and for the long years that we have to live. Even though Bulgaria's Jewish population stayed mostly intact during the Holocaust, after the war, 90% of Bulgaria's Jews went to the new state of Israel, where Hebrew would take hold. Under communism in Bulgaria, religious expression was discouraged. Many Bulgarian Jews who stayed were committed communists anyway. And Ladino curled up further, receding from the great Balkan expanse it once covered. The generation of my parents at home, they spoke Ladino only when they had secrets from us, from me and my brother, and when they argued between each other. My brother, who is just two years younger, and he knows just several words. And my children don't know anything, definitely. Yeah, this is my feeling that it will be something totally forgotten. Yes, it's uh, something um, close to heart. Vladimir Paunovsky is director of the Jewish Museum of History in Sofia. This was my roofs, my uh, origin, uh, far away through the ages. It's a big culture, which uh, not only here in Bulgaria, but in Turkey, in uh, Serbia, in Greece, exi- existed. It's very difficult to save it like mother tongue. It's, I think it's impossible. While Ladino may never again be a mother tongue, that doesn't mean it will die. In the state archives in Sofia, a slight, brisk woman opens a glass case and reaches for a text. In this shop here, uh, we um, keep a rich collection of uh, books uh, in Ladino, the language that the Spanish Jews speak. The oldest uh, book in Ladino here uh, was uh, printed in Venice in 1713. Vanya Gazenko is the chief archivist for the Ladino texts here. There is a book about the Congress on the 9th Zionist Congress, like a report which was printed in Bulgaria in Plodiv in 1906 in a publishing house called Worker. Working with funds from a Jewish patron in London, she and her team went through hundreds of boxes in the basement of the archives, making discovery after discovery. Well, the feeling to uh, take out a book which uh, was in that box for years and years uh, is um, extremely exciting. Every book, uh, we opened each of the books with uh, lots of feelings. And we went through it also with lots of <laughs> lots of feeling. The, the books you see in this room, um, each of them 
has passed through my hands. Uh, personally, I have opened every, every book in this room. Ladino will live on in these archives and in a new university program in Sofia to study Ladino and at a research center in Jerusalem. But soon it will go the way of Latin, still alive but mostly silent. At the Club Ladino, old women with wide eyes, wrinkled faces, and open mouths sing what they know to the next generation. That story was produced by Sandy Tolan and Melissa Robbins with help from Polya Alexandrova. It's part of Worlds of Difference, a series on global cultural change from Homelands Productions. From WFUV 90.7 and WFUV.org, this has been Fordham Conversations. If you have any comments or questions about today's show, you can email us at FordhamConversations at WFUV.org. We would, of course, love to hear from you. Fordham Conversations is available as a podcast at WFUV.org. It's also in our audio archive, which you can also find on our website. Producing the show today with help from John Stanford, I'm Nora Flaherty. Cityscape is next. Thank you for listening and have a wonderful weekend.